0: in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call PlantStock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on PlantStock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there.
1: You know, SOS is the international symbol of danger. but It also stands for the chemicals that people add to food that make them fat, sick, and miserable. And those chemicals are salt, oil, and sugar. And so by, you know, salt, oil and sugar are not actually food. They're byproducts of processed food production. And so when you add those chemicals to the food, it stimulates dopamine in the brain, like we talked about in the pleasure trap. And that induces a response we know of as pleasure. So the Mm -hmm. more dopamine, the more pleasure. And the more chemicals, the more dopamine. And so it's a a drug-like effect. And that's why we have the problem with dietary excess and metabolic syndrome, and why people are dying from cancer and heart disease and diabetes, and for that matter, COVID-19. The yeah. fact is that dietary excess is responsible for immune suppression that leads to um, a whole host of diseases that people are suffering from.
0: I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my plant strong pinto beans. I hope you love beans as much as I do. Beans, beans, beans. Speaking of beans, I got to say that it is simply amazing how far the plant-based movement has come, especially in the last 10 plus years since I've written my first book, The Engine 2 Diet. And What was once seen as completely kooky and outlandish and totally out there is now very much mainstream. Now, we still have a long way to go in educating people on what a healthy, whole food, plant-based diet is, but I just wanted to take a moment to recognize how far we've come in such a relatively short period of time. And I think it's one of the reasons why you'll appreciate today's interview with Dr. Alan Goldhammer, the founder of the True North Health Center and co author of The Pleasure Trap, with his colleague and lifelong best friend since the age of eight, Dr. Doug Lyle. It was back in November of 1984 that Dr. Goldhammer opened the True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California where they create a health-promoting environment espousing a SOS-free diet that stands for salt, oil, and sugar-free, along with water-only fasting. Now, that was almost 40 years ago, and as I know you can imagine, this monitored approach to healing was once seen as complete quackery. Today, however, because of the data, the peer-reviewed studies, and the astonishing results, fasting and fasting-mimicking diets are also now very much mainstream and accepted. When I think about it, we have created a society that makes everything so simple. With the push of the button, we have highly processed food. We have entertainment till the cows come home and all of the excess that we can handle, and clearly some <laughs> that we can't. We are caught in the pleasure trap, but we humans do have the power to override these temptations and allow our bodies to heal. Today, Dr. Goldhammer and I have a conversation on how and why it really is healthy to give our body a chance to rest, reboot, and break some of those physiological addictive behaviors that are keeping so many of us so sick. And speaking of the pleasure trap, Dr. Doug Lyle, who you guys are going to love, the esteemed evolutionary psychologist and co-author of The Pleasure Trap, he will be attending our upcoming Sedona retreat where he will be giving several of his paradigm shifting lectures that help us understand all of the myriad forces that are working against us in our quest to live plant strong. And once you see the system that we live in, you can't unsee it. And Dr. Lyle is an absolute genius in giving us language and tools to set ourselves on a permanent path to success. And great news, our Sedona retreat has been approved for 21 and a half CME credits for physicians and physician assistants, and 21.5 nursing contact hours for nurses, and 2.2 CEU hours for other healthcare professionals as part of the registration fee for our Plan Strong retreat. There is no place on the planet like Sedona in the Red Rock Mountains in October. I hope to see you as we learn and live together against this stunning backdrop. Visit planstrong.com Sedona for all the details. Now, let's get it on with Dr. Alan Goldhammer. Alan. Hey. Hi. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. It's been a long time. I think the last time I saw you was either 2013 or 14 when I did a little flyby there uh in, in, to the true north uh, health center in santa rosa and you were very cordial and you let me in and you gave me a great tour and and you also um fed me some of that vegan sos fare <laughs> do you remember of course yeah it was epic it was awesome you know it was great for me because i'd heard so much about true north but then to finally you know land and see what it was all about was really was really awesome.
1: We've made a lot of changes since you were here. We've done a lot of growth and and added some more buildings. And so, yeah, fasting itself has gone from being criminal quackery to cutting-edge research. So now there seems to be a little bit more interest and acceptance in some of the work that we've been doing for the last 40 years.
0: What do you think has allowed this water fasting only to go from being basically quackery to cutting-edge data researchers?
1: I think people like Walter Longo at USC have been uh, really helpful because they've published uh, information in mainstream journals that look at the physiological effects of fasting and have raised uh, issues of, about where fasting may be helpful, both as a standalone intervention as well as in conjunction with conventional therapy. You know, they've showed, for example, that when you use fasting in conjunction with chemotherapy, that there's dramatically increased all uh, survival. and uh, and effectiveness. That fasting creates an environment, for example, where uh, healthy cells can be protected against the damages of some conventional therapy. And then they augment the benefit uh, of therapy. And they did a lot of that with animal studies and now more recently in human studies. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've also been uh, very productive in terms of publishing uh, articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals showing both the safety and the efficacy of water only fasting as a means of helping the body overcome diseases associated with dietary excess. You know, right now, most people that are dying are dying prematurely from coronary artery disease, heart attacks and strokes, type 2 diabetes, autoimmune diseases, and cancers, including lymphoma. And fasting has been shown to be exceptionally helpful in giving the body a chance to try to heal itself from these conditions where there really isn't uh, effective medical management for many of these uh, uh, problems. And so, That certainly raised, uh, I think, the bar as far as uh, people's willingness to consider something really radical like diet and fasting as far as a treatment.
0: Yeah. Well, I look around me and intermittent fasting is like part of the lexicon now. And it wasn't, it wasn't to me even five years ago.
1: So intermittent fasting, would people limit their feeding window? The idea that maybe you shouldn't be eating all day long, all night long and waking up and eating and So the idea is to limit your feeding window to, depending on your goals, eight to 12 hours a day. So that means you're not eating three to four hours before you go to bed. That you may delay uh, breakfast until you've had a chance to do some exercise in the morning. And in doing this, you may help reduce overeating and uh, increase uh, fat mobilization. And particularly if in that eight hour feeding window, you stick to a whole plant food SOS free diet, you're likely to get uh, tremendously good results. Uh, And hopefully, uh, you know, that'll be sufficient to resolve people's problems. If it's not, then of course, we use fasting as a way of augmenting that
0: healthy diet and lifestyle. But what's interesting to me is that if somebody maybe in the past would have never been interested in doing something as what sounds as extreme as a water only fasting for days, and in some cases, I know you guys go up to 40 plus days, the fact that this lexicon is now out there oh intermittent fasting Uh, they're not as scared off to me as doing something like that
1: no question people used to think that if you got on an airplane in new york and you flew all the way to california you die of starvation over colorado unless you ate the peanuts they think you know the peanuts or the pretzels is what saved their life (laughs) and now you know people even if you're just thinking about 16 hours of fasting cumulatively day after day after day after day just that little bit of fasting is thought to have a long-term beneficial effect, and so the idea that a longer period of fasting might have an accentuated benefit is good. When they talk about uh, fasting mimicking diets, idea create situations that induce some of the benefits of fasting. It introduces the idea that fasting has benefit, mm-hmm. and so I, I think you're right. It's just the you know getting the language out there, getting the ideas out there, and then of course when you look at the actual outcome data, it's overwhelming. You know, we did a study on high blood pressure. We took 174 consecutive patients with hypertension. We demonstrated the largest effects that have ever been shown in treating high blood pressure in humans with an average effect size of 60 points in systolic blood pressure reduction with nothing other than fasting and a healthy diet.
0: And that's over what period of time?
1: Those, that period, the fasting periods range from five to 40 days. So in that study, I think the longest fast were actually about 23 days. So the idea is it doesn't... um, It doesn't take a lot of fancy intervention. You basically get people on a healthy diet, stop eating, give the body a chance to normalize blood pressure, and then it's sustainable to the degree that people are willing to continue to eat a healthy diet. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also true, if you can just get people to eat a healthy diet, many people's blood pressure will normalize without fasting. But what happens is there are some people that, for whatever reason, have difficulty implementing a good diet, or they've implemented a good diet, but their problem is severe enough that it persists. I think that's why Dr. McDougall calls us the punishment. Right. So he'll he'll send us a patient with the idea that, oh, I'm so sorry to do this to you, but you know, your blood pressure is still high. So you got to go over to Goldhammers. Good luck to you. You know? <laughs> it's like, thanks. You know? <laughs> they call oh. us True North Health Center, the last resort.
0: You know? <laughs> that's right. That's right. You've been kind of going down this path for, for 40 plus years. Is that yeah, right? 40 years?
1: Next, and we opened the True North Health Center in 1984. So we've been fasting people continuously. uh, Since then, we've had over 21,000 people actually do water only fasting at at True North Health. And before that, I was uh, going to osteopathic college in Australia. And I worked with Dr. Alec Burton, and we did, you know, fasting there and at his facility. So yeah, we've got about 40 years in so far.
0: Alan, I I just want to like, understand how it is that you landed where you landed. Tell me where you're parents physicians?
1: No, actually, um, not at all. My parents were teachers. and uh, But it was really Dr. Lyle uh, that drove this whole process, because we grew up together since fourth grade. And he was always much, much better than me in basketball. And it frustrated me. And I wanted to beat him. And I tried practicing more. And none of that worked. And I thought, well, maybe if I got healthier, I could beat him. And I read books by Herbert Shelton and others that said that health was the result of healthful living and that it was diet, sleep and exercise that led to health and that fasting could help undo the consequences of dietary excess. And I thought, well, I'll implement those diet and lifestyle recommendations and then I'll crush him. The problem was it completely (laughs) failed because he adopted the same kind of diet. And to this day, I'm 63 years old. He still kicks my butt every time we play. So it hasn't worked yet, but I'm hoping that if he ages out just a little faster, maybe by the time we reach our 80s, I'll finally be able to beat him.
0: Well, I have a feeling you probably eat just a little bit cleaner than he does.
1: Well, we eat the same diet, but occasionally he might indulge in a little vegan carrot cake or something. And I'm hoping that little occasional variation will ultimately catch up with it.
0: (laughs) Well, tell me this. I mean, so you guys are friends and know for people that are out there, I'm also good friends with Doug Lyle, not like you. But Doug is, is a speaker at all of our um, medical immersion programs. And so I've gotten to play a lot of basketball yeah. against Doug. I don't know if he's told you. And uh, I actually took him down once in horse and I also took him down once in around the world. And that, that's, that's no small feat. No. This guy, this guy is like a shark. Oh, I, right. let me tell you something. It's like Doug Nash. That's I worked for
1: six months on, I thought, you know, I can't beat him. one. He's quick. He's a very good basketball player. So I thought, well, I can beat him in free throws though, because that's just practice. So I'm shooting 500 <laughs> shots a day. I'm practicing for six months. And then very casually one day, I just said, hey, why don't we do a, you know, free throw shooting contest? He said, oh, okay, I haven't played in three weeks, whatever. So I get 48 out of 50. And I think I got him. I got him." He hits he hits 19 misses one and then hits 80 in a row
0: it is it is really crazy and it's okay. ridiculous
1: yeah. I, of course i'm saying geez what a choke you know <laughs> if you're gonna hit 99 out of 100 why don't you just hit a <laughs> hundred
0: exactly well so i just saw doug a couple of weeks ago and he had a bit of a bum knee. So now's your chance to take him down.
1: Yeah, but that doesn't really I don't get any satisfaction of that. I gotta wait for him to heal and then we'll then we'll go back out. So
0: how is it that you and Doug both simultaneously found whole food plant-based nutrition at the same time?
1: Well it's because you know I had I had read that material and I discussed it with him and he thought, well yeah that makes sense. And so he did it.
0: He sure did wow.
1: So yeah if he if I hadn't mentioned it to him then maybe I would have gotten enough uh Benefit uh, over him, but yeah, what can you do?
0: Well, what's well, amazing how you guys have remained friends that long, and uh, this experiment has now gone on what for? How long?
1: Uh, well, since nine, so fifty-four years, I guess so far.
0: Four years, and you both look remarkable. You're you testaments to what the lifestyle can do.
1: I, I have to say though, I was yeah. also I was also inspired by my uncle who was a physician, and and my uncle. Um, said that uh, this alternative medicine stuff was the worst thing ever. And when I mentioned, when I was 16, I decided to pursue nutritional medicine as a career. He said, no, no, nobody in this family is to go to somebody like that, let alone become somebody like that. He said, better you should be a communist spy. (laughs) <laughs> and my father who was a really serious guy didn't say much. He took me aside and said, "Son, I don't know anything about this alternative medicine business he says, but anything that makes him that angry and that mad, yes. it can't be bad." So good luck to you and stick to your guns. So
0: yes. that, it, now is your is your father and mother still alive?
1: So my father uh and mother have both passed away. Both had good lives and good deaths. My father at 88, my mother at 93. Oh. And uh, my uncle, interestingly enough, uh, when we went, when I came back from Australia, I decided we would do a study on our first study on hypertension. But my uncle wouldn't look at the data. He said until it's published in a peer reviewed journal, he won't have anything to do with it. And then finally, after we worked with T. Colin Campbell from Cornell to get it published, two months before it comes out, um, my uncle died of a massive heart attack. And um, uh, until she died, my mother insisted that he died just so he wouldn't have to admit he was wrong.
0: Oh, my goodness gracious. (laughs) I understand you went down this path. When did you actually open up True North?
1: We opened True North in uh, November of 1984. My wife, Dr. Morano, and I uh, started True North, and, and that's been going on since then.
0: And you do anywhere from a couple days to 40 days Water fasting is one of the many things that you offer. What are some of the other things that you offer at True North?
1: Some people are not candidates for water-only fasting. We may do juice fasting, or we may do just healthy eating programs. Many people come in just to eat healthy food. And we have uh, a dozen doctors, so medical doctors, chiropractors, osteopaths, naturopaths, psychologists. So there's other things that may be offered for people Um, In addition to fasting, although most of the people that we see now are coming for medically supervised water only fasting, we have a 70 uh, bed facility, we are booked, you know, right now I think they're booking November, so we book many months in advance, we have about 100 people on a wait list right now so there's a lot more demand than we can provide but fortunately we've trained some doctors in our internship and residency programs and there's places now in Ohio and Southern California uh, and uh, in Texas And in Florida. So there's other places that people can go to where doctors have been trained in using uh, fasting uh, to help people overcome these diseases that respond well to fasting or for healthy people that are looking to stay that way. We actually have some data out just this last month, not published yet, that shows that these tremendous biomarker changes that occur in sick people, actually in healthy people, in some cases, the biomarker changes are even more profound that it may actually be the healthy people using fasting preventatively that Mm. may derive actually the most benefit of all. We actually have a paper that just came out two weeks ago in Nutrients, which is a pretty big impact journal. And it looks at the cardiometabolic uh, risk factors associated with uh, coronary artery disease. And it's absolutely tremendous because not only have we shown that you can do fasting safely and that these changes occur when you're fasting, but now we have six-week and now one-year follow-up data showing that not only can people get well, but they're actually able to stay well by adopting a whole plant food SOS-free diet. You know, SOS is the international symbol of danger, but it also stands for the chemicals that people add to food that make them fat, sick, and miserable. And those chemicals are salt, oil, and sugar. And so by, you know, salt, oil, and sugar are not actually food. They're byproducts of processed food production. And so when you add those chemicals to the food, it stimulates dopamine in the brain, like we talked about in the pleasure trap. And that induces a response we know of as pleasure. So the more Mm -hmm. dopamine, the more pleasure. And the more chemicals, the more dopamine. And so it's a a drug-like effect. And that's why we have the problem with dietary excess and metabolic syndrome and why people are dying from cancer and heart disease and diabetes. And for that matter, COVID-19. The fact is that dietary excess is responsible for immune suppression that leads to um, a whole host of diseases that people are suffering from.
0: We'll be right back with Alan in a second. We have been talking a lot about those highly refined and highly processed foods that keep us in the pleasure trap. But as you hear Dr. Goldhammer and and I discuss, you can break the cycle. And I wanna share this quick letter from a couple who did just that. Hi, my wife and I have been vegetarian for over 30 years. And since January, we have been plant strong. We cut out all oils and other fats. We followed your recommendations, and I have to thank you. I have been on blood pressure meds for six years with no reduction in my BP. Since being planned strong, I now have a healthy blood pressure in just three months. Thank you so much, Tony Bailey. Well, Tony, huge congrats to you and your wife. I love your distinction between being vegetarian and being planned strong Being plant-strong is just that, eating strong food that is low in fat, no added oils, low in salt, sugar, and all the other addictive junk that is often found in these highly processed foods, even those so-called plant-based foods that you're seeing so much of these days that are littering the grocery store shelves. If you want foods that you can trust, Visit plantstrongfoods.com for our brand new assortment of chilies, soups, stews, pizza crusts, cereals, guilt-free granolas, and much more. And if you need help in the kitchen, our Plant Strong Meal Planner is our most powerful tool to save you time and keep you on track. Visit mealplanner.plantstrong.com and save $10 off the annual membership with the code Plan strong. Okay, back to the conversation with Alan Goldhammer. So this Western diet that is so widely accepted right now in this culture and is responsible for a problem that is the same magnitude as heroin, alcohol, and tobacco is basically just seen as absolutely normal.
1: Well, 93% of all the calories consumed by people living in industrialized countries come from either animal foods, which is meat, fish, fowl, eggs, or dairy products, or highly processed pleasure trap chemicals, so the oil, the flour, the sugar, the refined carbohydrates. So only 7% of calories come from fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And a third of that is potatoes, which are served mostly as French fries and potato chips. Fruits and vegetables are no longer statistically significant percentage of the diet of most people. They're the decoration on the plate. And that's why people are, uh, you know, two thirds of people are now overweight or obese. If you're not obese or overweight, but you are abnormal, the average or normal person is now suffering from the diseases of dietary excess.
0: So as you talk about in The Pleasure Trap, how are we supposed to fight these millions of years of evolutionary preference for foods that are concentrated in calories?
1: Well, you know, the pleasure trap is the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. As I said, it's the reason why people are overweight and developing all these diseases. In a natural setting, it's not a problem. You're designed to get as much to eat as you can, eat the most concentrated foods available. And if you're really lucky, you might live to reproduce. Remember, most humans didn't live to reproduce. They died from predation, starvation. They didn't didn't pass on their genes. They were the losers. Your ancestors were the winners. They're the ones that got enough to eat, didn't get eaten and managed to pass on their DNA. And they were you, you were designed for an environment of scarcity for almost all of human history. Humans lived in an environment of scarcity where getting enough to eat, and not getting eaten was so difficult that only the fittest survived. Now we live in an environment because of processed foods where you can get enough to eat, and not get eaten and never even get off the couch. Yeah, people are so um, deconditioned now, they can't even get out of their car and walk all the way into the McDonald's. They got to go through the drive-through because it's just would really be too exhausting to walk all the way into the store. You can't even get up to get another beer. You got to have a chair with a cooler in the bottom of the chair so you can avoid to have to. Do that you can't walk up the steps. You get on the escalator or the elevator. You don't even exercise anymore. We pay other people to do it. We call it the NFL and you watch other people exercise and pretend that you're part of the winning coalition as they engage in mock warfare. You know, we've created a society where, you know, getting enough to eat is so uh, simple that you don't have to do anything in terms of exercise or moving. You know, let's think about it in a natural setting. Why did people move? Because they were hot, they were cold, they were hungry, they were thirsty, or they didn't want to get eaten. Well, none of that requires any kind of effort any, anymore. And because our brain is designed for energy conservation, pleasure seeking and pain avoidance, the motivational triad that we talk about in the pleasure trap, it's exactly what you predict would happen. And it's exactly what happens to all the other animals if you give them access to highly processed foods, rats and birds and mice, they'll get so fat they can't even fly because they, if they're given access to the kind of foods we eat, it's exactly what you would expect to happen unless you override it consciously. A rat's not going to override it. Every rat that's given access to uh, excessively calorically dense foods will get fat. But humans have the option of overriding it intellectually, but it's really difficult. And that's why most people aren't doing it.
0: So unwittingly, these buttons that are embedded in us from the motivational triad are robbing us of our health and happiness.
1: Absolutely. And you know it, obviously, with drug addiction. Like, for example, if a person's an alcoholic, we know that alcoholism leads to not just compromised uh, physical health, but also emotional health and well-being. Uh, But if you go up to an alcoholic and say, oh, you know how your life, it sucks? It's because you're a drunk. Do they go, oh, it's the alcohol? I had no idea. Oh, thank you so much. I won't drink anymore. Or do they tell you to mind your own effing business? Yeah. Cause they're caught in the pleasure trap. The same thing can be true with cocaine and with heroin, very difficult to escape uh, the pleasure trap associated with drugs. Well, what I'm saying is that the chemicals that we put in our food, the oil, the salt, the sugar, stimulate the same dopamine cascade in the brain. And although they may not be as powerful short-term say as cocaine, yeah. the, the neurochemical uh, pathways are the same. And so you have two thirds of the population that are addicted to the artificial stimulation of dopamine in their brain, just like drug addicts are addicted to artificial stimulation. They're addicted. And so when you tell them, oh, you need to stop eating all those refined carbohydrates and the sugars and you need to eat a whole plant food diet, that's one of the most difficult things they're ever going to do in their life. It's so difficult for them because not only are they addicted, but they're also banging on their neurochemistry. They eat the sugar, their insulin goes down, their blood sugar goes down, the brain thinks they're starving. And the brain is just trying to keep you alive. And the brain does not want you to lose that fat, by the way. If you're losing fat, your brain is saying, oh, you're hemorrhaging strategic fat reserves. Stop it. Mm -hmm. Because them skinny ones, when spring comes late, they're not going to make it. The ones that are able to store fat, let's, put, let's be clear. Your ancestors were not the skinny ones. They were the ones that were able to store fat. And when spring came late, they managed to survive. When they went on the long boat ride, they got to the end of the trip. They probably ate everybody else for all we know. But the reality is that your programming is designed for an environment of scarcity. You live in an environment of abundance. The only way you override that, the only chance you have is to understand how it works intellectually and choose to have the discipline to override it. And it's very difficult.
0: And you call that making the decision?
1: You you, you call it whatever you want to call it. Bottom line is it's diet, sleep and exercise. That's what you have to do. And our version of diet, just like your version of diet is a whole plant food diet that doesn't require or rely on these chemicals in order to be able to, um, you know, meet people's needs. So it's whole plant foods, things like fruits and vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds, the things that only make a tiny percentage of most people's diet.
0: Tell me about the law of satiation.
1: So if, if there was no satiation mechanisms, you would just keep eating. Okay. And you see that in some humans that have less sensitive satiety mechanisms that eat the same kind of diets, other people, but they get fatter and fatter. Sometimes you get so big, they can't get out of the house. Most people will get to a certain size and then more or less come to some level of balance because of satiation mechanisms where your brain tells you you've had enough. For example, think about it. If you just sit down and eat apples, you know, you can you eat a certain number of apples and then you feel full or satiated. And if you try to push that, you'll get really negative feedback like a bellyache. Any kid that sat in an apple tree ate too many apples the next day. gets a. But you don't get, if you're sitting and say, let's say you eat 500 calories of apples, you're, at some point you feel full. But if you, say, take ice cream, you can take a 1,500-calorie container of ice cream. You'll eat the whole container. You'll be banging your spoon in the bottom looking for more, uh, wondering, you know, where the rest of it is. You don't get that same consistent feedback because it's highly processed fractionated food. So when you take foods and increase chloric density artificially, for example, like in breads where you have 1,500 calories a pound instead of wheat berries, which would be 500 calories a pound. When you eat highly concentrated or highly fractionated food, your satiety mechanisms don't work as well. So eventually your yellow circuits will kick in, you're overweight, eat less, and they'll keep you to some level. But that level is significantly higher than what it should be healthfully in most cases, unless you happen to be a person like Dr. Lyle who have really sensitive satiety mechanisms. And I mean, I can even remember as a kid before we knew anything, you know, you don't have some of those things will have like two cookies in the package. He would have one cookie and wrap the package up and put it away because he was full. I mean, I would have eaten the cookies and the package and everything else that went along with it. And so, you know, depending on your individual satiety mechanisms, it determines how fat you get the people, the people that are eating conventional diets that are not obese. It's not because they're more disciplined or they're doing a better job. It's just their natural satiety mechanisms are a little more sensitive and even to some of the more concentrated foods. So they'll tend not to be as overweight. What's great though, is if you want a whole plant food diet, you don't have to worry too much about the satiety mechanism because you start getting large amounts of low density food. So the fiber is there, the satiation mechanism in the stomach, the satiation mechanisms in the brain are activated. And so people eating large volumes of low density food find they can maintain optimum weight without having to weigh and measure and have all this uh, um, hyperdiscipline. Love. Um, the problem is the more highly processed foods, the easier it is to fool the satiety mechanisms and become obese. And again, it's true in rats and mice. If you take rats and let them eat as much as they want of their normal child, they get you a certain size, but you put sugar, oil and salt in the food, they'll gain 49% of their body weight in 60 days. This isn't psychological. It's not because the rat was under stress. It's because mommy and rat didn't love them enough or daddy rat loved them too much or whatever. It's biological. It's because they're artificially stimulating dopamine in their brain from the chemicals added to their food. So they eat more. Yeah. The moment you stop fooling the brain, you stop the problem. And, and if you're a male, you can expect weight loss to average about three pounds a week, a female about
0: two pounds a week. And just to kind of drive this point home, will you share with the audience, if you look at other mammals, in their natural environments, right? You don't see very many overweight. There's no
1: obesity unless they get access to highly processed foods. Even whales, which you think of as kind of being blubbery, they're yeah. 9% body weight. They just happen to wear their fat on the outside of the body, but they're they're lean mean machines. On the other hand, if you give any animal access to highly processed refined carbohydrates, they will gain weight. Look at what happens to dogs and cats and any other animal that you have familiarity with. They all become obese and they won't stop. It's like humans at least have the theoretical potential that they could stop because they can volitionally override it if they understand how the system works.
0: So you talked about that whale being 9% body fat. Did you uh, check that a whale out in your DXA scanner?
1: I didn't get to do the whale on the DEXA scanner. It's really limited to the people more of human size. But we did do some interesting work and I I wanna talk about that. We got a DEXA scanner in with the new uh, software that allows us to do detailed whole body composition, which not only tells you how much fat you have, but specifically how much visceral fat you have. Visceral fat is the type of fat associated with ill health and it's getting rid of visceral fat that's critical to preventing and reversing these diseases. Is
0: the visceral the the fat that's around the the organs? Yeah,
1: around the organs in your belly. You think of it as belly fat. So what we did is we took these subjects, we put them through fasting. We did DEXA scan before, at the end of fasting, at the end of follow-up, and then at six-week follow-up. And we said, what happened to the body composition? So when you go on a fast, you lose weight. You lose protein, fat, fiber, glycogen, and uh, 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 water. And then we said, okay, what happens at six-week follow-up? Well, what we found was that the lean tissue was actually higher at six week follow-up than it was before they started fasting, even though they had lost tremendous amounts of weight, but the weight was predominantly fat hmm. and perf- and preferentially visceral fat. In fact, a person that fasted two weeks might lose, say, for example, 20% of their total body fat, but 54% of their visceral fat. And that the lean tissue that they lost 4% of lean tissue during fasting had already been fully recovered at six weeks, And then some. So what you ended up doing was having body transformation, where fat and visceral fat was eliminated, protein, water, fiber, and glycogen fully restored. Now, that's assuming they're willing to do dangerous and radical things like eat a whole plant food diet, exercise, get enough sleep. If you go back to greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying flesh, alcohol, processed food, you will eventually get your fat and your visceral fat back but the ratio of visceral fat to adipose mobilization was three, almost 3.0. And words, the body was preferentially going in and grabbing this visceral fat that shouldn't even be there and mobilizing that preferentially over even adipose tissue and preserving lean tissue. One of the caveats though, is you need to have people resting when they're fasting in order to mo- minimize gluconeogenesis. So this is not a situation where you're Running around, exercising, and working, and this is done medically supervised in a controlled setting where people have had history, exam, lab, and they're monitored properly in order to make it safe. This
0: is this is utterly. I find this utterly fascinating that the body somehow knows when it's in fasting mode and resting mode to heal itself by going attacking first of all the visceral fat.
1: And think about this tumors. You know, we have uh, we've done some work uh, that's been published, in fact, in the British Medical Journal on the resolution of lymphoma tumors. Right. Um and so you think well if you lose 10% of your body weight you'd expect to lose 10% of your tumor but that's not what happens you might lose 10% of your body weight but 100% of the tumor so how is it to able to mobilize 100% of the tumor rather than just use it like it would any fuel it's because the body has some inherent ability to determine which tissues are the least vital and it mobilizes those first and in fact nervous tissue is never mobilized you can starve an animal to death. Not that we would do that, but and when they, they've done research where they've, they've started the animal to death and then look at the nervous system. There's no impact from starvation on the nervous system because it's preserved even to the very end. Yeah. So there's an inverse proportional mobilization that happens in fasting.
0: So explain to the audience, we get, we get the water fasting. The only thing you're consuming is water. Is it is it a particular type of water?
1: Well, it's highly purified water. We use laboratory grade steam distilled water because that's the best accepted. But you could use reverse osmosis. You, there's lots of ways to highly purify water. What you can't do is use municipal water because people will they can actually get very sensitive and they can detect a lot of the chemicals. They don't like it. They won't drink it. Then they get dehydrated. It's not good. So, we want to use some type of highly purified water. You know what would be the most purified water? Would be rainwater in a clean environment. That would be Mm -hmm. distilled water.
0: So, I'm going to ask you some really basic questions here so we can all get our heads wrapped around this. So, we're drinking water. And tell me, why is it we're not juicing or just eating kale or just minimal minimal amounts of really clean food why is that
1: well there's a unique physiological adaptation that happens with water only fasting it's very different that doesn't mean that juice diets or limited diets might not be helpful there we certainly use them they can be very helpful for people that are trying to lose weight or whatever but in water fasting there's a unique physiological adaptation that occurs so if your goal is to mobilize visceral fat if your goal is to break the tumor down, if your goal is to normalize blood pressure, for example, changes that would take place in a week or two of water fasting might take us months with mm. an alternative approach. So we want to—it's when you want to rapidly uh, make clinical changes, get people off medications, or if you have people, for example, that are addicted to sugar, and you can give them fruit juices that are full of sugar, and they'll like that and stuff, and they might lose weight and stuff, but you're not going to break that. Uh, physiological uh, addictive response as easily as you would in water fasting. And we've done a study on this. We actually did a study on taste and where we looked at minimum threshold to sugar, to salt sensation, before and after fasting. And after fasting, we've proved that the, those thresholds change, that people's liking of sugary, salty, fatty, salty food changes with fasting. What's bizarre is foods go from being tasteless, swill, disgusting to desirable, Mm-hmm. as a consequence. And now they're willing to eat the whole natural foods, whereas before, ah, they didn't like them.
0: So it's almost like a, a great way of, of resetting your palate.
1: It's like rebooting the hard drive in a computer that's been corrupted. Yeah. You don't know why, but you turn the thing off, you turn it on, and now it starts working again. Well, yeah. the same thing happens to people. Their gut microbiome is profoundly affected. Taste irritation is affected. Their desire, their willingness, they're just being out of pain. There's a powerful anti-inflammatory effect. So now you get people that are miserable. They can't exercise because they got so much joint pain. And now all of a sudden they can begin walking and hiking. And then the exercise increases brain BDNF and they can sleep better. And they get all the benefit of the exercise and diet that they weren't able to get because you couldn't get them to do it because they were so sick.
0: So this is really probably the most effective way at fighting people who are in the throes of the pleasure trap.
1: If you can't get them to do the diet and lifestyle changes then fasting might help them be able to make the diet and lifestyle changes. So, yeah, you know, I m- many of these changes will occur over time if you can get people to implement the diet and lifestyle changes.
0: But when you and Doug decided to write the Pleasure Trap, what was it 2005 if I'm not mistaken or 04, you must have learned so much since founding True North in 1984 that allowed you to understand unless this is stuff that's just out there and everybody knows about it, the motivational triad and everything. Well, no, that-
1: Nobody knows about the motivational triad because Dr. Lyle was the one that really originated that conceptually. Really? I yeah. argued with him. I tried to argue with him about that because we know that pain avoidance and pleasure seeking were dominant behaviors in human motivation. And he kept insisting, no, but energy conservation is a critical component. I said, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah no, no. And then of course, when I finally understood what he was saying, I realized he was just a really brilliant guy. He had figured that out. In fact, if you go through the pleasure trap you'll, today, you'll find uh, many of his conceptual insights are now being coming more accepted. The wow. pleasure trap itself has been, you know, much more accepted. People are writing about different, but he's really the one that that went back from an evolutionary psychological viewpoint and figured out how this works. That's original stuff vomiting out of his brain. That's And, good. and he, I, I yeah, he is really, when it t- comes to conceptual development, you will not find, I have never come across anybody whose brain works like his. It's yeah. just phenomenal.
0: Well, I think I remember Doug, Doug telling me a story over dinner once that didn't you two like lock yourselves in a house together and however long it would take for you to finish yeah. the book. And it was what, six months or something. Two
1: years actually. <laughs> and he, he came and, and he lived with us. And, and the idea was that every day, you know, we would try to get him right. He, he needs a little help getting organized. Once he actually sits down and starts writing, he's like 800 words an hour. He's unbelievable. He's like incredibly productive, but to get him organized. So my job was to get him organized and kind of take care of everything. So he didn't have any distraction. And then he would, you know, put those couple hours in of productive activity. And then we would argue conceptually about the concepts. And so I would challenge him on all the things that he was, and you know, the frustrating thing with him, he's almost always right. You know, <laughs> But what would happen is Jennifer, my wife, would come in at some point because we'd be screaming and yelling and arguing and carrying on. And she'd say, OK, boys, it's time for the green chairs. And we had these green chairs in the diff- far end of the house that was hidden behind doors where she couldn't hear us so she could go to sleep. And we would stay up and just really trash all this stuff through. And the thing is, by the time we were done, though, we came up—you know—the the pleasure trap was was there. And today, you know, we went back and looking at what would we change and how would we do it different. Really, there's nothing in there that we weren't that we can't defend today. There may be new things that we would add, yeah. but I think it still stands—it uh, stands the test of time, and that the, it conceptually is, in fact, an accurate description. And the reason it was based on evolutionary psychology and the understanding that we have from natural hygiene. And where we had, you know, many years of watching people make these changes and seeing what those struggles were. And so it was kind of a unique combination of physical and psychological. And it's a bizarre book. I mean, it's a it's a very disturbing book because it doesn't tell you what you want to hear, it tells you what you need to know to get and stay healthy. And it's not, it's not pleasant in the sense that people don't want to hear that they have to make diet and lifestyle changes, they got to exercise, they got to go to bed on time. And that there's no magic bullet that kind of violates the laws of physics or thermodynamics, so that they can get what they want without having to pay the price.
0: It's perfect, and the fact that it came from from you and Doug, you know, best friends since since the fourth grade, is 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 so appropriate. I want to go back to a sec to this water only fasting. So when I was doing my research, I read about how yes, the you know the water only fasting is very important for I think metabolism and whatnot one of the key components is you don't want to be running around exercising. You really want to be resting. And that's the part that was like, really? So I got to chill out.
1: So the big problem here is when you go on a fast, the reason what fasting is essentially is the brain changing from burning glucose to burning fat. The reason, for example, chimpanzees can't fast. They can go about a week and then they die. So that's why you'll never find chimps away from the tropics. They have to have a ready supply year round supply of food. Because their brain, even though it's not anywhere near as big as ours, ours two and a half times as big a mass, it's still, it's a pretty big brain and it burns a bunch of glucose. And so if you don't have food, eventually you break down your muscle because that's the only way you get glucose. You break down muscle, gluconeogenesis to make glucose. Okay. Humans had to be able to fast because our brain is so big and it's our biggest burner of glucose. If we couldn't fast and we could only live a week, every time spring came late, all the humans that wandered away from the tropics would have died. And they did right? All humans can change their brain from burning sugar to burning fat. And that's essentially fasting. So here's the problem. You go on a fast and your brain stops burning as much glucose, everything winds down. And now you only need a little bit of glucose. And you get that from labile protein, breaking down some protein, Mm -hmm. but you don't need much. And as you get farther and farther into the fast, by the end of the second week, 90 plus percent of calories come from fat. But let's say you take that person and make them use their muscles more or even make them use their brain more. What happens is then you have to come up with some extra glucose. Hmm. And the only place you can get that from consistently is breaking down protein. Well, you know, if you have a little bit, that's okay. But if you need a lot, that's not going to work. You're not going to live very long. Humans, instead of living just seven days, can live 70 days. Like if we took you and put you in a resting state, we could fast you 70 days before you die.
0: 70 Really? Yeah. Average uh, uh, uh,
1: 155 pound male can go about 70 days. So a thin male, you know, a fat guy could go a lot longer. They fast humans as long as a year, but a thin guy like you, that's a lower body fat, you know, high muscle mass could go certainly around 70. Not that you should do that, but you could do that. Wow. Now, if if we put you on a fast, you're going to burn mostly fat. And if you have any visceral fat, you'd burn that. You probably don't have much because you're a lean, mean machine, but the point is, that's where you get your fuel. But if you're exercising, you will burn significantly more uh, protein. And we don't want to deplete your protein source. We like you to keep your muscles as much as possible. And that means you have to rest. Hmm. So even though if you're exercising and fasting, you'll lose more weight, it'll be derived a lot, much more so from muscle rather than fat. When you rest, you ma- you maximize fat.
0: So you mentioned the brain and, you know, like what the brain uses, what, 500, uh, burns 500 calories a day, roughly, and glucose. Yeah. So, so when you're doing unless this, unless
1: you're Dr. Lyle, then it's probably like seven hundred.
0: But yeah, for sure, for sure. But so. If I'm doing this water only fast and I'm resting, do you not want me also like doing complex mathematical equations? It's it, it probably is a good idea it?
1: to keep it easy, but even so, your brain will change fuels and your brain will be burning mostly fat by the time you get into the fast. So yeah, there's a little bit of glucose that's used there, a little bit in the red blood cells, a little bit in the muscles, but if you're resting, it's really the muscle activity that we're looking to maximally conserve. So uh,
0: I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to get your opinion because in the last five years, it seems like, you know, we've evolved from the paleo to keto to carnivore, and it just keeps getting crazier.
1: Well, so what's, what's, your,
0: what's your opinion yeah. of these things? So
1: the dead Dr. Atkins diet, May, is fillet of soul, rest in peace. <laughs> it's not a, a long-term sustainable health-promoting diet. Here's the problem. It's true, you get a fasting mimicking effect when you go on a high fat, high protein diet. So it, just like in fasting, hunger is blunted. And so people can eat the greasy, fatty processed foods that have always been eating, get rid of the carbohydrates and lose a little bit of weight for a while. The problem is it's not a long-term sustainable health promoting diet. It's not a diet that you would put anybody on. A high protein, high fat diets lead to all kinds of health compromises. Shorter term effects with gallbladder and colon issues, longer term effects with heart disease and cancer. So even though, yes, you might be able to lose a little bit of weight because of the hunger blunting effect of high fat diets with low carbohydrate, that's not a health promoting long-term diet. And, you know, I think Dr., uh, I think he died at what, 268 pounds from cardiomyopathy. So, you know, and it wasn't because he fell down in the snow. He was not a hypocrite though. I give him credit. He stuck to that diet till the day it killed him. So, you know, what can you say? As far as long-term, if you want to lose weight quickly, the best way to do it would be to cut your leg off at the hip with a Mm -hmm. chainsaw because you could drop 40 pounds overnight. And if you want to drop 80 pounds, just cut them both off. But that's not necessarily a healthy way to do it. If you want to lose weight healthfully, you're going to go on a whole plant food SOS-free diet. If you're a male, you can expect to lose about three pounds a week. If you're a female, about two pounds a week. Okay, women are going to lose weight about fifty percent lower than men because they're full of estrogen instead of testosterone. And testosterone is a fat burning hormone. In fact, if you give women enough testosterone, they lose their fat. The problem mm. is they get hairy and get cancer and die. Not a good strategy. If you inject men with a bunch of estrogen, we get fat, we grow breasts and hips, and you know these are biological differences. So if you're a woman, what does it mean? You work twice as hard to get half the results. Just get used to it. I mean, you know, it's not just in weight loss. It's in everything else too. So, you know, that's, that's okay.
0: Alan. Yeah. I love it. You just don't mince words. You just tell it like it is. <laughs> I can remember Doug, Doug tells this story about how, you know, when somebody says eat, eat a whole food plant based diet without any salt, oil, sugar. I don't think I could do that. you just look at me saying, Oh, you're probably right. You probably can't. <laughs> it's not like, Oh, we sure you could.
1: You know, you have to, what what motivates people? Okay, there's only two things I see that motivate people consistently. One is people have problems. They have pain, debility, and fear of death. And if they have enough pain, they'll be willing to do anything for a while, even eat well or exercise or go to bed on time. And then sometimes people do it intellectually. You know, like, for example, um, I had a gentleman who came in who was a smoker, drinker, and meat eater. And he said he wanted to take the cure. And he was a mean looking guy. So I didn't ask him too many questions. We put him through the process. At the end, though, I said, how come you did this? And he said he did the math. Hmm. And he had just retired, 65 years old. And he said he realized in order to get his money back from retirement, he had to live to be 82. And he knew he wouldn't do it smoking and drinking. And he was going to get every damn penny back from the sons, you know. And so that was his motivating factor. So some people do it because they they want to stay alive. They value their life. They like their life. And so they don't want to find themselves unable to talk or move, lying in a nursing home bed waiting for people to change their diapers for the last 10 years of their life. And so they're willing to do things, sacrifice things, short-term pleasure-seeking, self-indulgent behavior, so that they can live until they die. Mm. They know they're going to die, but they want to live right to the end, go to sleep one night and not wake up and not end up being a burden on everybody around them. And so if you want to do that, you have to understand what causes health, and that's healthful living. And that's where the diet, the sleep, and the exercise come in. Mm -hmm. And I I was wondering, my mom, when she turned 92, she had outlived all 50 of her lifelong friends, many of which that used to make fun of her crazy diet and stuff.
0: Oh, she followed yours? She She did. She did.
1: Later in life, though. She didn't get started till later in life, but she did and ultimately outlived everybody. And she said it was a burden because, you know, it was hard to make friends in your 90s because even the people 10 years younger were still so debilitated, they couldn't do the things she wanted to do. And she said, Alan, you have to warn your patients. If they're going to do this diet, make younger friends. And she said, make much younger friends because, you know, that you need a big buffer or at least find a few friends that are health conscious enough that they'll still be around.
0: When you get old enough, you've had thousands and thousands and thousands of people come through your doors at at true North. Yes. You know, the silver bullet, I think for all of us, whether it's what I'm doing, McDougal yourself is how do we, how do we prevent or limit the recidivism, right? To to keep, to keep people compliant. Have you, do you have any like pearls of wisdom for that? Yeah.
1: You know, the thing is, it's, it's exceptionally uh, difficult. I can tell you what the most single effective way of improving compliance is it's pick people that are willing to make diet and lifestyle changes and find people that are willing to make diet and lifestyle changes that are motivated by pain, debility, and fear of death. Mm -hmm. So people that are really up against it and are, and are psychologically willing to try to make changes are the people that do the very best overall. However, having said that, we've just completed a study that looks at dietary adherence. So we've administered dietary adherence questionnaires uh, before fasting, after fasting, at follow-up and at one year. And and what we're finding is people are surprisingly effective at making um, uh, dietary and lifestyle changes. Sometimes some people do better over time. Some people do better cold turkey. Mm -hmm. Um, But ultimately... Um, people need ongoing education and inspiration in order to make it happen. So here's what we've done to improve our adherence. I used to tell Dr. Lyle that he was full of crap with all the psychology stuff, that if people were sick and they got well, they would do what it takes to stay well. They're not going to go back knowing what caused the problem and doing it again. And he said, of course they are. As soon as they're out of pain and they're no longer as motivated, they're going to start slip sliding back into the pleasure trap. Because it's such a powerful force and they're going to, you know, other people are going to offer them things. They're not going to want to offend them. They're going to go along. And before long, they're going to be caught back in the pleasure trap. I said, that's ridiculous. They're going to get healthy. They're going to stay healthy. And that's it. And, of course, it turns out he was right. People, you know, they say it was Mark Twain, the famous American philosopher, that said denial is not just a river in Egypt. Yeah, And people kid themselves a little bit won't hurt and they overestimate their own discipline and, and and resilience. And so they get caught back into trouble. And so what we've done is we set up, um, first of all, we've written some books, the pleasure trap and some cookbooks, the Bravo, Bravo express the health priority cookbook that are vegan SOS free cookbooks. So it makes getting food simpler. Uh, we encourage them to take uh, advantage of the commercially available foods like you've pioneered there. Mm. You know, you can go into whole foods and get engine, uh, uh, low sodium, low salt, healthier food options, Mama Says, Leaf Side, Well Your World that make SOS-free food options available. Um, and with the cookbooks, you know, uh, it also makes it, even people like I can prepare food that tastes good, that's, that's SOS-free. We also have um, a, a telemedicine practice with doctors that are available so they can talk to a doctor that's not an idiot and that has experience with people getting well, whether it's a medical doctor, an naturopath, whatever it is they need, and they can easily access them by going to our website and accessing uh, uh, the the telemedicine practitioners. We live stream our lectures every day so that people can freely get access to ongoing sources of education and inspiration. Uh, we, we get them to um, read books that are fabulous, whether it's John McDougal or your pop's books. You know, there's so many good stuff out there now that will convince people that this is what they need to do and can continue to re-influence and re-educate and uh, inspire them. And then there's people that, like yourself, that put on seminars that give them intensive experiences that can either get new people on board or help uh, people that are established kind of maintain their enthusiasm and, and vigor, and of course, we locked people up with the pleasure trap, creating an environment where they have no choice but to experience you know health, and that often seems to be helpful as well. So the resources available today are dramatically better than they were like when we when we all started. yeah, and you know, there was nothing anywhere that people could get
0: or do what what uh what it so it's probably about noonish there. Can you tell me what have you had to eat so far today?
1: Um, well, um, I had what I always have in the morning, which is some fresh fruits and greens and some oatmeal. Um, and I'll be having a salad and steamed vegetables at lunch and dinner, along with some more complex carbohydrates. Um, for me, it's really easy because I live, I, I work at the, at the uh, True North Health Center. So we have fabulous vegan SOS free food. And that's all that's available. There's no like temptations because there's no bowls of anything out there except healthy foods all the time. And uh, you know, and we eat the same way at home. I live on a small farm where we grow food for the the center, and so you know we have fresh stuff all the time available. And uh, you know, so it, it's easy when you are live in a and immersed in healthy choices. Yeah, you know that's a lot easier. I don't work at a place where I have to drive two hours a day to get to some place I hate to work with people I don't like to that make products I don't believe in, and then have candy bowls and highly processed foods laying around trying to tempt people into the pleasure trap. You know, it's much better to live in a health-promoting environment.
0: Well, you've certainly created that, uh, and then some. What's your opinion on supplements? Do you take any?
1: Uh, Yeah, I do. I think that vegans, uh, because we don't get all that fecal contamination from the dead, decaying flesh, and therefore a lot of bacteria, and therefore a lot of b twelve. We don't get a lot of bacterial exposure because we wash and we peel because we don't want worms and parasites and other stuff like that. So over enough years or decades, you can deplete your B12 stores. So we recommend that vegans uh, uh, take 1,000 micrograms of methylcobalamin a day, uh, which is enough to beat virtually everybody's need. Um, Mm. If you don't get out in the sun or you live so far north that the sun's not hot enough to make vitamin D, there are some people that get low vitamin D, easily tested. If it's low, then we want to get them out in the sun or if they can't get enough sun exposure – we would supplement that people that live in Minnesota that didn't eat anything, but food grown in Minnesota soil would eventually get iodine deficiency. So unless they supplement their diet with some sea vegetables or some iodine, that could be a problem. Some people have specific food sensitivities, like they can't eat nuts or seeds because it's food triggers or something. And maybe they might have to resort in doing some vegan supplementation to DHA, but generally The pills, the potions, the powders not only are not necessary, they can actually be detrimental. If you look at studies, for example, cancer treatment where they supplement vitamin A, people die at a higher rate if they're supplemented with A than if they're not. So sometimes the supplements are not only expensive uh, and useless, but may actually be doing harm. So we want to minimize pills, potions, and powders as much as possible, but recognize there are some things for either individuals that might benefit from individual therapeutic intervention. And for everybody that's a vegan, I would encourage you to to uh, 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 obtain a reliable source of vitamin B12. Right. You don't need to eat animal feces to get it. You can get it from a simple low-cost supplement.
0: Right. I know that there's liquid form that you can put sublingually or there's, you know, a a tablet form. Do you have a preference there?
1: I I would go with a major brand that does their own internal testing just to make sure you have a, but there's dozens of, you know, reliable brands. We happen to use a company called tier encapsulations because they're vegan sympathetic. Mm -hmm. They use vegan capsules for the capsules and they have liquid. The reason I like liquid is when you figure out what your cost per dose is, Hmm. It's less expensive in the liquid than it is in the capsule because you're probably not paying for the encapsulation or whatever. And so I like to use the least expensive cost of a reliable thing. So I use the liquid um, vegan B12 and that's, that's the only supplement that I recommend kind of universally.
0: Wow. You're pretty frugal. Cause I know that a, uh for me like a year supply is like 15 bucks i know but i
1: think you can get it even lower if you call You're right. and if you get the concentrated liquid you only need like six drops you don't even need a full dropper
0: full organic versus conventional how important is that for you
1: well it's important on two levels number one these chemicals that are sprayed onto uh Uh, plant-based foods are detrimental and they're cumulative. So avoiding them is highly desirable, but it's more important than just that. When you buy certified organically grown food, you're making a political statement too. You're supporting the organic farmers, whether they're the small farmers or the larger farmers, and you're encouraging what I think is an important shift, both for our own personal health, but also the health of our environment. Uh, Do you know who the largest seller of organic produce is right now in the United States?
0: I think I do. Yeah,
1: Costco Foods. And it's oh, not. No, because, I was going to say Walmart. I was going to no, say. No, no, it's Costco is actually higher than Walmart, right, Walmart by volume. right now. And Walmart's number two. But they didn't do this because of some social responsibility or some philosophical education. They did it because people said, oh, I would be willing to pay a premium for uh, organic foods. And so because people are willing to pay a premium, they're willing to sell it. And so that's been very helpful because when large players get involved, it encourages, you know, all the downstream consequences, and it makes it more acceptable. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we're working so hard at publishing papers in peer-reviewed medical journals, not because we expect that that's going to convince everybody to adopt whole plant food diets and use fasting, but it makes it more acceptable for those people that do want to do that to be able to carry on with it. It makes it less uh, uh, outgrouped. And so from a, a, a practical viewpoint, there's this hundredth monkey theory that if you can get even 1% of the population doing things right, it makes it possible for the 5 or the 10 or the 15% of the population that would do it if it wasn't outgrouped to be able to participate in that. Wow. And so right now what happens is the people that have the easiest time adopting these diet and lifestyle changes are the ones that aren't quite as worried about what other people think or feel we want to make it so people that are kind of normal and do care about what other people think or feel don't have to feel so uncomfortable that they're not willing to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think the same thing happens too with, with organic, you know, it used to be organic was some kind of hippie thing or, and now it's not, it's, it's accepted as a, a valuable thing enough that people are willing to pay a premium and people like Walmart and Costco are willing to get serious about making it available to us.
0: I got I got to close on another fasting question. So when you fast, do you water fast during the, the the year? And if so, like for how long? Well, I fast
1: every single day for 16 hours. Okay, And I fast once a year for at least a week. And if at the end of the week, I have no symptoms, then that's it. And that's what we recommend for healthy people. And I hate fasting because you have to rest and you have to, you know, you can't play basketball. And it's not, a, I don't find it a pleasant experience, but I do it because I find it's exceptionally Beneficial, and I think actually it'll turn out to be even more beneficial in healthy people and helping us stay healthy than it is even in the benefit we are proving with sick people and getting them well.
0: Well, but you you said something interesting to me. So you'll go for a week Mm -hmm. as long. And you'll stop there as long as you're not experiencing symptoms. What do you yes. What do you mean by well, symptoms? Well, when
1: you put a person on a fast, a lot of times they get all kinds of interesting detoxifying symptoms. Their mouth croaks up and tastes like something crawled in there and died. They get skin rashes, nausea, low back pain, headache, irritability. But people on healthy diets typically don't get any of that mm. or minimal amounts of that. And it goes away very quickly. And so if by the time you get to a week of fasting, you're asymptomatic, your numbers are good, everything looks good. I don't know that we get tremendous additional benefit pushing it beyond that. So we tend to, in healthy people, we tend to do shorter fasts, use the fast diagnostically as well as therapeutically, and then move on and go back to the healthy diet. In a sick person, we'll fast them until their problem is resolved, or if necessary, do multiple fasts until their problem is solved. If you have a person with high blood pressure, or that's overweight, I want to fast them as much as possible until their normal pressure, normal weight, normal blood sugar levels, not having joint pain, get rid of the chronic headaches, get rid of the tumor, get rid of the lymphoma, cancer, whatever it is, and if I can't get it all done in, in a 40-day fast, then I'll bring them back after they recover and do it again, and do it again until they get well.
0: Well, and do you have people that have been back again, and again, and again? Yeah, in
1: fact, we've published papers on people that did a 40-day fast, recovered, did another 40-day fast, and, you know, then resolved problems that have, you know, long-term duration. For people that are interested, go to our website at fasting.org, which is the fasting wow. convention website of our of our foundation and all of our studies are available. It's mind boggling to tell, to see what can happen when you essentially do nothing.
0: What about some of these autoimmune diseases? Uh, I mean, lupus, what about multiple sclerosis? I mean, I know rheumatoid arthritis and stuff, but what about MS?
1: Autoimmune diseases are diseases where your immune system is actually attacking your own body. So rheumatoid arthritis, it's your immune system that's causing the joint deformity. In lupus, it's your immune system that's attacking the kidneys or the skin. In in asthma, it's your immune system that's attacking your lungs. In eczema, it's your immune system that's creating the the skin lesions. We just published a case of plaque psoriasis, resolving with fasting. Again, autoimmune. And one of the triggers in autoimmune disease is gut leakage. So people uh, absorb proteins that shouldn't be absorbed through an inflamed gut that's caused by eating greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying flesh, and refined carbohydrates and all the rest of it. In fasting, you're not eating anything. The gut leakage heals. And then after fasting, you're on a whole plant food, SOS-free diet. Autoimmune diseases respond dramatically to this type of diet and lifestyle change, and fasting can make that response happen even quicker.
0: Wow. And what about multiple sclerosis?
1: In MS, the body's immune system is taking out the myelin sheath. And so that... Um, is a very unfortunate, uh, condition because to the, depending on how much damage has already been done, you may be able to stop progression or slow progression. And Dr. Swank showed that, that people that adopted a healthy diet and, and uh, Dr. Swank, uh, did that research and Dr. McDougall has taken over that practice and has been able to show that you can slow the rate of progression. Um, I don't know how much, um, Reversal, there is of actually myel encoding, but the body recanalizes neurological function. So that's why it looks like it's it's healing. I don't know that it's actually healing. I think right. you're just slowing down that uh, progression most likely. Uh, but in the in the case of like even autoimmune disease, like type one diabetes, mm-hmm. I mean, essentially you have two things that cause juvenile onset diabetes in kids. Um, one of them is they some p- kids are unfortunately exposed to milk proteins from cows. And in genetically vulnerable kids, the immune system will get confused and react to the islets of laying your hand in the pancreas and destroy the islets. And that's what causes um, diabetes in kids. Or also there are viral uh, issues also, that, which may be associated with animal food consumption. But anyway, so a virus or autoimmune response causes your child to now have to be a, a, a juvenile diabetic. Mm-hmm. Um, even the American Pediatric Association, I believe, tells you don't give babies you know, cow's milk because of this problem. And of course, there's other problems with counseling. Oh my gosh, you know, bovine leukemia virus, mad cow disease, all the other stuff that, you know, used to be poo-pooed, but now has become more acceptable. Uh, In fact, I don't know that there's any food that is probably more detrimental uh, to the average person than eating dairy products. I wrote a book called Nobody Needs Milk. And it was interesting because Colin Campbell ran it on his website, had 6.5 million downloads. And uh, I think it's probably, we can pretty well be sure we won't be getting any funding from the American Dairy Council at the True North Health Foundation.
0: (laughs) Nobody needs Needs any milk. Yes. Wow. Um, Can I get you, just as we're closing out here, to say that line that I think you said it three times during the interview, but I'd love to hear it one more time. So don't eat greasy, slimy, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) Dead I, what dead is
1: flesh, yeah, I have to tell you a funny, quick funny story. <laughs> I was uh, walking along this. I made a comment in one of these movies. I think it was What the Health. Yeah. Uh, milk being essentially cow pus right. because they allow 750,000 pus cells per cc. And that, yeah, it's true that the average milk doesn't have that much. It only has 320,000 pus cells per cc. That was like taking a cow with a festering wound, sticking a straw in it and sucking. And so I talked about milk being essentially cow pus. So, anyway, I'm walking along the street. I happen to be in Las Vegas, I'm not giving a talk. I'm just walking along the street, and some guy comes up to me and he goes, Hey, you're Dr. Cowpuss.
0: <laughs> so, you're Dr. Greasy, slimy, dead decaying flesh. Greasy,
1: fatty, slimy, dead decaying flesh. Well, that's essentially what animal products are. Aren't
0: they? Yes, yes, yeah. I Well, Doug loves to let people know how you describe it. <laughs> just not messing around. Yeah. Oh, man. Alan, you are doing such incredible work at, at True North, way to be, way to like, you know, stay consistent, keep keep the pedal to the metal, all the studies you're doing, your 501 C3, the 20 plus thousand patients that have come through since 1984, you are doing, oh man. If any of your
1: listeners want to know whether fasting might be relevant to them or if they want the name of uh, the closest place to them that does fasting. We have an interesting free service. If they go to our website at healthpromoting.com and fill out the registration forms that gets me their medical history, I'll review that. I'll be happy to have a phone conversation with them at no cost, and I can help them determine, is this something that they should be pursuing? And if so, who might be the best person for them to
0: pursue it with? Beautiful. Beautiful. Alan? Thank you for being on Plant Strong. Thanks for having me. Hey, give me a little bump, all right? Keep it Plant Strong. Diet, sleep, exercise. These are the keys to optimal health. And of course, as Alan says, staying away from all of that greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying flesh. (laughs) Two key takeaways from today's episode. One, you have the power to break free from the pleasure trap of the SOS world that we live in. That's again, salt, oil, and sugar. And two, adopt a whole plant food diet. Immerse yourself in healthy choices, and let's let the healing begin. We'll link all the resources from today's episode in the show notes at plantstrongpodcast.com. I hope to see you all next week. And until then, keep it plant strong. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kortowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth, most notably, my parents, Doctor Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.